My first comic that I made that I'm going to read today is a bit of an existential comic. It's about me walking through a graveyard feeling FOMO about all the dead bodies. <laughs> okay, it's called Sutherland. Uh, big <laughs> Some of you may know there's a graveyard in Sutherland and that's where I walk through to get this comic out of. Okay. Our friend Emma lives on the periphery of a memorial park. One time in trying to reach her house, we stumbled into the cemetery by accident. Uh, we're near the Anglicans. <laughs> it was a beautiful place, far less gloomy than what I would have expect. Mad lighting. As we walked on, we saw tombstones. Many of them stretching as far as the eye could see. But I realized they weren't just tombstones. They were people. Who were they? Their lives must have been as vivid, as vivid as yours right now reading this. I wanted to imagine what their lives were like, but I couldn't. Yet they were undeniably real, even though I don't know about it. What more don't I know? How much splendor have I missed? The world is so big. Nancy Lee read her comic Sutherland at Comics Reading Night. Read to me. This is Or It Didn't Happen. Stories from Sydney and beyond. I'm Zasha Rosen. The second story this week is set during the dictatorship of Salazar in Portugal. Me Familiar and Other Pigs was written by Georgia Manuela Delgado and read by Sharika Helaludin. It comes with a content warning. When I was a child, I could see ghosts. I could hear them too. What's your name? What did you die of? I asked a ghost one day. A nun in her habit. A broken heart child. This nun I picked up in the convent in the next village. She would get in the car with us and come home with us sometimes on Sundays after church. She would stay with me until I fell asleep. Then she would go back to the convent. That's always where I'd find her again. There were lots of ghosts there, from the convent cemetery. One ghost died in a fire. She would bake cakes in the convent bakery. She was particularly good at baking pastel donada. She was always offering me cakes, but I could never see them. Her hands were terribly burnt. The other nuns would kiss her hands and sing her, Oh, Fatima. All the ghosts in the convent looked after each other spoke to each other with kindness. They were so gentle they almost whispered, which is strange for the dead because they're normally screaming. Once I saw two nuns take off their habits and braid each other's hair. Women, alive or dead, will practice the economy of reciprocal care. No institution, not even the church filled with love and the Holy Spirit could instill that in men. But these women, my phantasmas, Learnt in life that to survive Salazar, the war, the rape, the suffering, the heat, the beatings, the fires in the mountains, the starving of everyday life in Portugal, the only way to survive all this is other women and love. They use suffering and turn it into love. Like how women lie in their own blood once a month and still make children from that. As to be expected, all of the women in my family believed I saw ghosts. These women live in the realm of the dead. 
Death never ends when you live in a dictatorship. That doesn't mean that they give me any special attention. Women from our village have to grow up and be strong. When you work in the hot sun and open your pores to God, she fills them in with cement and hardens you. There's no time for sentimentality. Even romantic love starts out soft and poetic and quickly becomes a cruel and brutal torment. Love is always unforgiving, especially for women. My may always felt unloved and therefore unloved everyone else. I could never understand why my may was not like the nuns. She never sang, she never oiled her hair, she never sat in the sun and closed her eyes and daydreamed. She had children to take care of. That included her husband. My May had one of her teeth knocked out with a rock in our garden because it turned grey. My great aunt knocked it out for her on a long, warm Portuguese night. I remember that night because she put me in my room and closed the door. She didn't want me to see. I opened the door and peeked anyway, so she hit me really hard with the rock across the face. I was nine. By the time I was 16, I had stopped seeing ghosts. My May worked it out of me. I could still see all the things I was meant to see, but more faintly. It lingered because my grandmother would always let me into her rituals. She was a brucia, a witch. When she knew my grandfather was lying, we'd go to the butcher together and buy cow tongue. She would cut it up and ask me to rub salt and olive into it. Then we would cook it into his arroz con polvo and he would eat it. Then my grandmother would ask him his secrets and he would tell them. This allowed me to keep my connection, to see the things in between. My grandmother would send me to Lisboa once a week to buy fabrics for her. She sometimes made me clothes, but she made them more for other people. Even now, sometimes people in my village will ask me to come into their homes and admire their curtains or blankets because my grandmother made it. I would wait for the bus in a petticoat my grandmother made me. The bus came when it felt like, but not everyone buys a ticket. This doesn't happen all over Portugal, but it does in our village. There's less and less work and more and more trouble. Nobody speaks to me on the bus, even though I sit at the front near all the old people who love to talk because I'm scared of the older boys at the back. Today, people are talking about the fires in the next village. Someone died yesterday, a little girl, trying to save a picture of the dictator Salazar. The whole family escaped, but she ran back in to get the photograph, and she got trapped like a moth in a lampshade. It's true, my friend lives in that village. That girl is dead, an old man my grandmother knows says. I think about whether that's true, or if it's propaganda. She definitely died, but not for a picture. The bus is moving, but people are standing up, reading over the newspaper. Oh, she was bonita, I hear a woman saying. I can't see the newspaper, so I have to imagine the little girl. I know she already has her ears pierced no matter how old she is. I think of my grandmother, who has never had her picture taken, and never will. There will be no picture of her in the paper, and not one on her gravestone either. I feel something, but I don't know how to describe that feeling yet. Years later, I recall that feeling as bitterness. On the bus, we passed the best village on the way to Lisboa, Villa Francajira. Some neo-realist philosophers live here. 
Although I have no idea what that means, I know it's important because an older girl at school told me and her sister studies philosophy in Lisboa. Villa Francigira has the biggest and most beautiful bullring I have ever seen. The entire outside is painted gold. Sometimes people from Lisboa even come here to see bullfights. People in Villa Francigira drink coffee at the cafes, but in my village they only drink beer or poncha. I always want to get off the bus and have coffee too, but my mate would have some ominous punishment awaiting me if I was late. We are stuck in traffic and I'm not sure why. It's a Tuesday morning. There is no mass on. Sometimes I can feel when something bad is going to happen, although not all the time, just when God decides. It's because I can see the whispers, because I can see all the things in between. I can see from the bus the Garda Nacional Republicana soldiers and I know something is wrong. The Garda Nacional Republicana make me nervous because when they come to our village looking for traders, they stand in the middle of the sidewalk and make women rub against them to get past. The first time they did that to me, I was 11. The bus stops at the Garda wearing berets, even though it's really hot. Behind them, there's blood splattered all over the gold, like the first time I lost my tooth and dribbled some blood onto my maize gold hoop earring. The blood on the ground reminds me of the first time I got my period in the dirt, but I'm less scared than I was when I got my period. The bus keeps going and people are gossiping. I don't remember what they said about it then. I was too anxious to pay attention. By the time I returned from Lisboa that day, the reason had hit my village. A bullfighter had slayed another bullfighter. Machismo murder. The mortician said he couldn't ply the teeth out of their knuckles with just pliers. They had to pour oil all over their hands first and massage the teeth out. Only years and years later did it come out that they were lovers. My pie was fighting the fires in Villa Francigira that day I saw the blood. The fires were so bad that the firefighters from our village went to help. My pie fought one of the worst fires Villa Francigira ever saw at the piggery. The fire surrounded the men and they had no choice but to jump into the piggery waste lagoon and go under as the fire spread over the top of the water. The pigs fried and the smell was so close to human flesh that the firemen believed that they were smelling dead bodies. The men left the piggery convinced they had been underwater with dead children. Most of the men were discharged with what we now would call post-traumatic stress disorder, but back then it was called going luco. In the middle of the night, my pai would wake up to the sound of children screaming, and then he would go into our garden and look for them naked. All the old women on our street talked about my pai going luco. On my way home from school, they would say, Yeah, there she is, such a beautiful young Nina. What will happen to her now that her pie has gone and decided to be a fucking Luco, eh? My grandmother thought it was funny and would laugh at him. She would say, What are they saying when they are screaming? What words do you hear? She said my pie did not listen properly and they will not go away until he hears them. My mai never laughed. You are the man of this house and ghosts are screaming in your ears at night? Phantasmas that don't exist. They were procos, always procos. Is this the spiritual nobility of the peasantry? 
My pie started drinking poncha every night to drown the noise, but ghosts don't ever drown, they learn to swim. The children screamed less and less, and eventually my pie went to work as a labourer. He was still known as Luco, but someone who had pulled it together for his family. Then one hot day he died in an accident at work. He was completely crushed by a machine. It was so fast that they say he would not have had time to suffer. The night he died was the first time Emma slept alone since she was 19. They were married at 17, but he spent two years in Angola fighting for the colony. Years later, I fell asleep on the couch in my parents' home during a tedious visit filled with remembering emotions, suppressed in order to survive my childhood. I never slept on the couch. It was something my father started doing when my maid kicked him out of their bed. I woke up hearing children screaming. I couldn't hear what they were saying. Coming up soon, Murderer, written by me. But before that, a story by Victoria Manifold, which also comes with a content warning. Ghost emoji. Hi. Remember when we were spooky as hell lovers and would text each other at exactly the same time to say I love you? Your thumb moving at the same speed as my thumb, but 128.7 miles away. Tap, tap, tap on that Nokia 3310, like an insect's jaw twitching in delight. I would have sent you an emoji of a ghost after that, but emojis didn't exist then. It was 2005. Nothing existed in 2005. None of the people alive today were even born in 2005. There was just you and me. You were a smooth, dirty stomach, the colour of pepper. I was the clammy ring of a wrist where a leather watch strap had sweated out the smell of vinegar. You'd kiss the tip of my nose and I'd kiss your forehead and we'd taste like salt in each other's mouths. Bodies are just condiments and it's true that without your body, I couldn't really taste or even feel anything at all. I would wait two weeks for the 48 hours when you were a silhouette above me in the half-light. So long to wait for that moment when you would wipe the sloppy end of your dick on dirty pastel curtains that were as thin and brittle as old paper. And maybe they shattered when you did that. And maybe everything shattered when you did that. In your sweat-soaked bed, we hastily constructed a tiny, fragile palace made from the smell of our bodies and a series of involuntary noises. And in that palace, you became a ghost who haunted my insides. A ghost crawling all over my skeleton and using your ghost fingers and ghost mouth to press at the buttons on my spine. The buttons on my spine sent electricity directly to my brain and then spook-fueled brain electricity settled in puddles all over us. For two out of 14 days, I could slot myself inside you, but you were so disgusted and I was so embarrassed when you took a little lump of damp toilet paper out of your mouth after going down on me. Your tongue ran over the ridges of your gums, panicked that a piece of me would wedge in your sturdy molars forever. You walked faster than me when we were out and wouldn't wait when the shoes I bought to impress you blistered my feet. I knew then that you would never revel in the smell of the juice squeezed from the blisters. In very small corners, I milked the pus from my foot. I touched the crispy wave of flesh left behind when the blister burst and dried out and I whispered all of my secrets to that yellowy white sheet of skin as slight and lined as a map. I'd written you a love story with my body, 
but you didn't want to read it. I tried to make myself prettier, but somehow I always looked like a clown whose face had collapsed because of a serious but not life-threatening medical condition. Everything in the world shrunk to the size of your room, and I shrunk myself to the size of a bird or a bug or the stain on the rug from something that had dripped out from inside me. I wondered how you could sleep so soundly next to me when I was wide awake and watching the Nokia 3310 light up with messages every five minutes or so. It would have carried on that way forever, taking a train across the Pennines every other weekend if you hadn't gotten an STI from a Danish exchange student who drank pints of milk for refreshment and fun. Later I'd look at her MySpace and try to decide if she had better eyebrows than me. It seemed so important to win in that way. If only my face could produce hair of a certain thickness, in a certain way, then the bone and flesh of my chest would be able to grow back. My spine would strengthen and it would be easier to look at my skin. Because I had so much love in my guts for you that I just about shit myself every time I saw you waiting on the platform. Sadness can be unbearable sometimes, but that's about all I can say on the subject. After becoming dehydrated on a train, all that was left of you and me was the thick of discharge like a smear of porridge sitting in my gusset. The itching and the tests and the look of disapproval from the middle-aged nurse who knew my mother socially. You gave me the gift of an overwhelming feeling that I would never ever really know another person and we became just like everybody else really. I'm not stupid. I swear that my sister's cat once ate leftover lasagna and it literally died right afterwards, so I know the world is built on so many lies. But I didn't think that it would happen like that. That breaking the thread between two places would be so ordinary. Or that afterwards my body would find so many other bodies that fit together with it so nicely. It was only the eventual invention of the ghost emoji that would remind me how I once fitted so well into yours. The ghost sticks out its tongue and holds up its arms to surrender and terrify. A big eye like yours, a small eye like mine. It's spooky as all heck, and it's just like us. Bye! The ghost always arrives before me. And that's a problem. He's a white blur, like a slap of paint across a lens. A kind of super white, blowing out your eye's capacity to take in white kind of white. But also slapdash, as though he's badly painted. He's never quiet. At coffee meetings, the ghost arrives early. Hovering. Pointing a crooked hand and rasping. is what he says, shivering his finger at my empty seat, waiting, knowing I'll be there. When I do get there, he'll keep pointing, but he drops his murmurs low once we start talking, because even though his anger and hate funneled on me with the fury of the unjustly dead is there, I think that being a ghost might be really boring and he likes to eavesdrop as long as he thinks that nobody's noticing. All our friends, and before he died, we had a lot of friends in common, all our friends shun me. Professionally, though, some people are drawn to viciousness. The first that most people knew Murray was dead was when Sylvia, his wife, 
my friend, rang around his friends, matter-of-factly, planning and inviting us to go to his funeral. Her call had the inkwash of grief, her voice monotone. The funeral was spartan, very practical. It was a shock. The whole day was surreal, like a thing which hadn't happened yet. Sal was the last person to see him alive, Sylvia said in her eulogy, talking about me. I still don't know what the two of them were doing late at night, in that lot. Maybe we'll never know. I know what we were doing. At that point exactly, a white stripe of anger lurched out of the coffin, shuddered into the air, launched across the room, and into a violent single point of fury, a single pointed finger right at me. He shouted. And I couldn't argue right there and then. Everybody screamed. Sylvia screamed. The world seemed to slip a little, a little to the side. But that might also have been me falling to the side. I fell on the ground, I think. Everything spun. No, I said. No. Sylvia still calls me. She calls me every day. She knows in her heart that I killed him. But that's not why she calls. Have you seen Murray today? She'll ask me. I've tried to speak to her, but this is all she'll let me tell her about. How is he? She asks. He's angry, I say. He's still angry. She'll be quiet, and then... Anything else? I don't know, I tell her. He spent a long time looking at a cauliflower salad. He liked cauliflower, she'll say. I didn't know that, I reply. But she's already stopped listening. She hangs up. My lunch meeting today is at a cafe I know. Hannah behind the counter tells me that the ghost is waiting for me. He's at the table with my lunch appointment. He's screaming, pointing, anticipating me. I ask if Karen, who's there waiting for me, I ask if she's okay. Hannah says yes. They tell me the ghost has been glancing at the sandwiches. Across the table, Karen offers me coffee. I say no when she asks me if I've listened to a new podcast about a young woman who was murdered. I think I know where this is going. I take out my sketches, her company name splashed out across 3D lettering, pastel letterpress type, and boxed into Helvetica. She looks approvingly at some. Her mouth twitches, which might be a giveaway about which one is getting approved. Karen leans over at one point, when we're talking business, and Murray has become too crass, too howling and too plaintive to ignore. I'm not sure it would bother me if you did do it, she confides in me. I knew she would. It was a dark night that night, and it was a cold night, and it had actually been a long time since Murray and I had seen each other. I say the lot was empty. It was a warehouse, but a bare thing, haggard, its bricks fallen down through years of neglect to collect at our feet. I brought a bottle of whiskey. I forget the brand. Writer's Tears, maybe? Not a nasty brand. I don't think so. Murray drank most of it himself. I don't know what other pills he'd been taking, but I think he'd been taking a lot. I didn't know that. Not yet. I only knew that after the autopsy, when it was ruled a poisoning. I'll leave her, he told me. I'll leave her soon. There was a lot of hate in Murray at the end. 
And I think so much of it was bitterness at himself. But you can't turn that bitterness inside you. It needs to turn outward. I didn't know why Murray couldn't be the sort of person who made himself happy, who didn't need approval from people he didn't love, and who didn't say such bitter things about his wife. I'm not listening to this, I said, leaving him to drink by himself. And he woke up dead, I think, poisoned. I think he remembered who gave him that last deadly bottle he seemed to have choked on. I could tell him, any time, you know, and I'd be lying if I told you I don't miss him, that it's not a kind of joy to have him here with me, still. But I think the person I loved is gone. For me, this is something else. But he was always, always so lonely. It broke my heart so lonely. And he's with me now. He's with me all the time. And Sylvia calls every day, which I think is enough. And the last story this week, Comfortable, drawn, written and read by Samuel Luke. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So the comic I'll be reading tonight was actually taken from a journal entry that I wrote um, about a month or two ago when I... I reached my one year on testosterone anniversary and I was having a lot of complicated feelings and emotions about that. So I just made a comic. Um, so coming out as transgender as an adult and transitioning in my 20s often feels like I was shoved into manhood when I was denied a boyhood. It doesn't feel natural to me to make that leap right away, to call myself a man when in fact I still need time to be a boy first. I didn't have the language to describe how I felt when I was younger, to know that I was transgender, to know who I could grow up to be. All those masculine social cues I missed, all those feminine mannerisms I had to unlearn in order just to blend back into a binary that I spent so many years trying to escape. It doesn't feel natural to me to make that leap right away. It might take a while for me to be the way I'd always imagined me, to see myself and be comfortable with who I am despite anyone telling me what kind of man I should be. I didn't want to admit this to myself or to anyone, but I still feel uncomfortable in my body after top surgery, after being on hormones for over a year now. I didn't want to admit this because I should be happy now. I should be comfortable by now, right? Isn't that what I've been trying to do for these past five or so years? but I'm not. In so many ways, of course I am, but just not in the ways I expected or hoped to be. I'm still figuring out how to exist in this world now that these major events in my transition have happened, now that society sees me and often treats me as male, but I wasn't socialized as male. It still doesn't come naturally to me. I had expected it would by now. I still occupy my body and navigate the world in my mind's eye of how I used to look and how I used to sound pre-transition, like a shadow that I can't shake. In that distressed mindset, the people are still staring at me, trying to figure out whether I'm a girl or a boy. And in spending so many years making my body invisible from myself and from others, I became comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. 
And now I'm spending my time healing from that internalized trauma and learning how to be visible again. It's alarming how long the mind can take to catch up to your body, even when you know you can be comfortable now, that you can breathe now, that there are no more chest binders, that the fight is over, that I've done the biggest, most life-changing things that I'll probably ever do in my life. But I need to relearn how to occupy my own body and I need to relearn how to be comfortable in it. I'd always struggled with body dysphoria before I knew what gender dysphoria was or what being transgender meant to me. I was always hyper aware of feeling out of place in my body, not feeling connected to the space I occupied or the vessel that was meant to represent me. Even when I was very young, my mind could easily dissociate from my body and imagine a different embodiment of reality. I moved around a lot growing up and throughout high school, so I've lived in many different homes and had many different bedrooms. Sometimes I'd lay in my bed at night and picture myself back in another bedroom of mine, back in another house, from another time, back when I had another body, just to escape that current body and feelings of deep discomfort and distress about how it felt in relation to my gender to temporarily exist in a memory of a body before it changed or imagine a future body where I didn't feel so uncomfortable. I would also dissociate looking in the mirror, picturing how I wished my body looked after I started testosterone and after I had top surgery. And then one day it happened. After so many years of waiting, the waiting was finally over. I know it was a gradual change, but there were moments where I'd do a double take or look in the mirror for a bit longer. And I remember wishing or imagining to look like this years ago. And that's who I am now. There's something so strange and so surreal about wanting something so desperately to happen for so long that when it finally does happen, you don't know what to do with yourself. And I'm suddenly faced with the, well, now what? But it does feel like I've crossed over this dark barrier in my mind. And there's this sudden radio silence. After so many years of having nonstop thoughts and feelings of distress and discomfort, it's suddenly quiet. This is the first time in the longest time that I've felt a sense of ease being in my own body. It still feels numb to know that this flat chest is finally here. This deeper voice is finally here. These changes that no one can take away from me because they're a core part of my being now. It's emotionally surreal to see myself for the first time every day, to no longer have to imagine a different self or a different body in a different reality from a different time but I need to take time with this new body, to take time to get to know it again and to relearn how to be comfortable. Thank you. Comfortable was originally read at Read To Me, a comics reading night in Sydney. You can read Samuel's original comic and more of his work 
at samuellukeart.com. A copy of Comfortable is there as well. You can find Read to Me on Facebook by searching for Read to Me. Sutherland was by Nancy Lee, a Sydney animator and comic artist. You can find Nancy on Instagram. Search for N-L-I-A-N-D-E-R-T-H-A-L. Georgia Manuela Delgado's Me Familia and Other Pigs was originally published in Mascara Literary Review. It was a commended entry in the Wollongong Writers' Festival Short Story Prize. It was read by Sharika Halaluddin, also known as Akka from FBI's Dance Class. We'll include links to both in the show notes. Thanks also to Michelle Carl. Ghost Emoji was originally published in Victoria Manifold's collection of short stories, Tired Bodies. Look for more of Victoria via Instagram by searching for Victoria underscore Manifold. Murderer was written for Or It Didn't Happen by me. I'm Sasha Rosen. I also produced this show. Find more of it on the web at fbiradio.com slash or it didn't happen. Episode art was by Samuel Luke. Show art by Annie Hamilton. More stories from Sydney and beyond next week.